Well, good morning. Okay, oh, that's when I'm going to start over. Um, good morning. Thank you. I have had um, no fewer than 24 ounces of coffee this morning preparing for this moment. Um, and by 24, I really mean 32. I just didn't want to say 32 because I was afraid of that look on your face when you saw that I drank 32 ounces of coffee before we started this. If I go down at some point in the middle of the service, um, I just need a couple of you guys to paper, rock, scissors it out and figure out who's going to come up here and say everything you know about the Antichrist and then y'all can be dismissed. We are in the middle of a series on the book of Daniel, and, and I am fully aware that there are members among us who assumed that we were done last week when he got out of the lion's den unscathed. Um, but we're not. We're pressing on into the latter half of the book with chapters 7 through 12, um, which for us formulate the only apocalyptic passages of Scripture that we have in the Old Testament. That's right. We are into the apocalypse. Um, I said a couple of weeks ago in one of the teaching times that the book of Revelation, which we of course assume is an end times book um, from the New Testament, every uh, 20 of the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation quote material from Daniel. And every single, all, all 12 of the chapters in the book of Daniel are somehow quoted, um, have material quoted in the book of Revelation because there are so many references that go back and forth. This morning, um, if you're wearing an elastic waistband, then you made a wise choice because we're going to gorge ourselves on Scripture. If not, you may want to loosen a belt loop or two and, and really um, assume the position to take it in. We're actually not going to live exclusively in Daniel 7 and 8, which, how did I draw the straw of having to come and not talk about just one apocalyptic chapter from the book of Daniel, but two apocalyptic chapters from the book of Daniel? I don't know, but here I am. Um, and so we, when we dive into that today, we're not just diving into Daniel 7 and 8. We're looking at dozens of cross-references that come from the remainder of Scripture. And here's why. Because when we zero in on a passage, one of the best and most crucial tools that we have at our disposal to understand that specific passage is all of the cross-references that come from other parts of Scripture that help explain to us what it means. And so this morning in your notes, I didn't expect that you would come here and write down all the references that I threw out there, but you have tons of verses that you can go and read throughout the rest of the week to help unpack for you what it is that this passage of Scripture means and what it is that God wants you to do with it. We start this morning in Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8 together and look at the images that are going to launch pad us into a discussion of what it means to be the people of God living in a generation today, but looking for something to happen in the future that's really going to propel us into what it means to follow Jesus. Here we go. Daniel chapter 7. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and immediately we have to stop and recognize that we're going backwards. Because in Daniel chapter 6, he wasn't living under Nebuchadnezzar's rule anymore under the nation of Babylon. He was living under Medo-Persian rule under Darius the Mede. And so we're backtracking even past the beginning of chapter 5 because in chapter 5 it was the end of Belshazzar's reign because the handwriting came on the wall and took out his kingdom that very night. Now we're in the first ring of Belshazzar. He was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. We're back in Babylonian rule. And so in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. We're also switching gears here from everything prior to being third-person descriptions of Daniel to the things going forward being a first-person narrative from the writing of Daniel. Daniel declared, verse 2, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. 
After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were four before it, and it had ten horns. Verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And we only thought that people like J.R. Tolkien, J.K. Rowling, and C.S. Lewis had the lockdown on fantasy writing. And you also infer from those two authors that apparently you have to go by your initials if you're going to be a great author. I don't know. These four beasts that are described in Daniel chapter 7 are counterparts from the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed up in Daniel chapter 2. And in your notes today, I provided a table so that you could underline and underscore what the four kingdoms that were coming prophesied by both Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2 and then Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. Here's what you can fill out. The head of gold in Daniel chapter 2, along with the lion and eagle's wings in Daniel chapter 7, represented the Babylonian empire. In fact, that lion in chapter 7 greatly tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar because you know he went crazy and for a period of time his wings were plucked off and he was no longer ruler. Well, then when he came back, he was set up on feet like a man and he was given the mind of a man because Nebuchadnezzar, we will remember, had a transformation. And the arms and chest of silver, that second kingdom in Daniel chapter 2, is, is portrayed by the lopsided bear in Daniel chapter 7. And then again in Daniel chapter 8 by a two-horned ram. That's the Medo-Persian empire. Two horns, lopsided. And this being the reason, because that bear had a, one stronger kingdom than the other, the Persians eventually overtook the Medes, and they were the stronger of the two. The belly and the thighs of bronze described by the statue in Daniel chapter 2 is the four-headed leopard in Daniel chapter 7, and then again the great horned goat in Daniel chapter 8. The earthly kingdom there is the Grecian kingdom. And finally, the legs of iron in Daniel chapter 2, coupled with the unnamed beast, the one where we're given a description, but we're not giving specific animals that it addresses, is the Roman Empire that is coming. These empires, these ones that were foreshadowed of the world, become earthly empires that we've seen throughout history leading up to the point in time where we are today. And from this, we're going to grapple with one truth and one truth alone, and that's we have an enemy who will always be after the praise of God's people. You see, every single one of these kingdoms rose, and every single one of these kingdoms fell. We have an enemy, an evil one, who is lurking around seeking to receive the praise that is due God from God's people. I don't have to convince anyone this morning that there is evil in the world. We have hardly had a day in the last two weeks where a headline has not revealed that there's evil in the country. If you caught the news on the way to church this morning, you know that in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, there are more headlines. There's more reality. There's more illustrations of the fact that evil lurks in this world. Our enemy's presence is made manifest in earthly kingdoms. And I'm going to make a startling statement, one that I hope that even after I make, you'll continue to listen to all the other statements that I make after that. Don't tune me out after this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Our God only chose. When it comes to the nations of this world, he chose one, and that was Israel. And what does it take for a person to enter the kingdom of heaven? The government will not get us there. A president will not get us there. A policy will not get us there. Our family will not get us there. Only adoption into God's family through faith placed in Jesus Christ will get us there. Everything else, everything else 
is nothing but the fodder of an evil one who wants to make himself known and to make his name great. These beasts, these horns, these nations, even our semi-prosperous one, it is nothing more than a tool that the enemy twists into his image to make his name and himself known. Listen to his mantra. It was in verse 8. You see how he boasts? The NIV reads that he spoke boastfully. The ESV does us a favor because the Aramaic here for speaking great things literally translates into making great statements. Our enemy has always been and he will always be after the praise of God's people. All throughout eschatology, in imagery about beasts and about horns and about fantasy, there's a running theme of an enemy who is at war with God. He has no creativity of his own, so he simply manipulates the things of God into his own image into things that God has created to grab his own praise. He desires it. He longs for it. In in Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, it's your first cross-reference for the day. It says, And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? We read these words like we read Harry Potter, and when we do that, we miss the bigger picture that this is not some creative character offering us well-written fantasy. This is a description of both a present and a future reality. And the reality is we have an enemy and he wants our praise. He wants the praise of God's people. In Daniel chapter 1, when he carted off all the boys over to the city of Babylon and he invited them to eat from the king's table of the king's fine food, it was an opportunity for him to steal the praise that was due God. In Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a blazing furnace because they wouldn't bow down to a statue, all of that was an effort to garnish the praise that was due God's people. In Daniel chapter 5, when they were having a drunken orgy festival, praying to their gods and using artifacts that had been pulled out of the temple of the holy God, that was one other opportunity for them, for the enemy, to garnish the praise of God's people. In Daniel chapter 6, we talked about this last week, when a king named Darius declared that you couldn't pray to anybody but him, that was an opportunity for the enemy to steal the praise of God's people. And the sad thing about that whole narrative from Daniel chapter 1 through Daniel chapter 6 is that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they were not the only Jewish boys carted off to Babylon. The others, we can only assume that they fell. We can only assume that they gave in. We can only assume that they ascribed their allegiance to a pagan king, and when they did that, they ascribed worth to our enemy. Those attempts by Satan are not isolated to the book of Daniel. They're full, fully represented throughout the canon of Scripture, and they're, they're, they're extended to us today. Because you and I, in the world that we live in, we are invited and enticed and seduced and even deceived to declare who is like the beast That's why our study of Daniel matters. And and that's why passages like this one, rich in eschatology, Beth Moore says that Daniel chapter 7 is the most important chapter in all of the book of Daniel. And, And she says that we read it not fully understanding it because it's not about us, but that doesn't mean it's not for us. We're approaching a text that is difficult today and in some ways feels inapplicable today. Why do these words of eschatology, the study of last things and end times, why do they matter I've given you a couple of reasons, and it's not an exhaustive list because there are likely others, but a couple of reasons are present for you in your notes today. The first is this. These words of eschatology, they expand our view of God. They expand our view and our understanding and ultimately our worship of God. Continue in your reading in Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 9. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Beth Moore says that the reason why his throne has wheels is because he takes it everywhere he goes. God is never off of his throne. 
A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This ancient of days, this name for God tells us that he is timeless and that he is ageless. This ancient of days, this name for God tells us that he is sitting on a judgment seat. He was the judge in the Garden of Eden. He was the judge over the flood. He was the judge when the Tower of Babel was built. He was a judge with a prophetess named Deborah sitting under a palm tree. He was the judge over the temple that he inhabited that Solomon built for him. He was the judge in Nineveh when he sent Jonah to go to that city. He was the judge in Babylon when it came and overtook the land of Judah and took Daniel and his friends carted off back to the city. He was the judge when he, by the hand of a human, wrote on the wall the pronouncement of what would happen to Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. And he sits as judge over you and me today. He's our judge. I'm glad about that. Why? Because I'm so thankful that's not my job. I'm so thankful that it's not our government's job and it's not the media's job. I'm so glad that it's not your job. I'm thankful that it's not the next generation's job and I'm thankful that it was not the previous generation's job. And you should be relieved today that it's not yours. And in a nuance that you wouldn't remember if you weren't here on Daniel chapter 1, the week that we started this series, or you haven't been a part of the Tuesday night Bible study that's dove really deep into this book, the name Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. And so every single time that we have spoken that name in the six chapters prior, and every single time that we will continue to speak that name in the six chapters after, we are declaring with our mouths, God is our judge. He gets to do that. And that word judge or judgment, it makes many of us cringe today. We don't like it, but... If we're really thinking hard about what it means, imagine a world without it. Uh, Imagine a world where no one understood that God was not only creator of the world, but also judge over it. It leads to a higher view of him. Listen to these words from cross-references, Isaiah chapter 6 and 66. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year, this is Isaiah, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. We just read about the throne of God. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response to seeing God seated on his throne was, Woe, I'm in trouble, because I'm a sinner. And in Isaiah chapter 66, 1 and 2, read these words. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. We just read about the throne of God. And the earth is my footstool. Imagine that this planet that we're on is nothing more than the ottoman that God props his feet. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. These words of eschatology, why study them? Because they lead to an expanded view of God, and they lead to the right response to God, which is humility, awe, worship, and wonder. A high view of God, it's in your notes, it leads to worship and fear. You see, the sin that we see so entrenched in the world isn't just an elevation of self, I am, and there is none like me. It's really a refusal to acknowledge God as God. When our students, teenagers, there's always like a higher concentration of them sitting over here in this area. 
when they see friends, after having been raised to understand that this book is truth, when they see friends grappling with it, and when they see friends rejecting it, and they have a difficult time standing firm on it, it's because we're handing them a world with a hamstringed inability to stand on truth without being labeled intolerant. We're handing them a world that says, you get to determine what is right for you and what is wrong for you. You get to define for yourself who you are and who you want to be. We're handing over a a, a world and, and a lack of holiness in it where we've told people that they get to determine and be judged for themselves. When this book tells us that it's not our job, it's not the church's job, it's not parents' job, it's not politics' job, God gets to do that. And the only way that we get to succeed in a world to worship and communicate his truth in one that labels us intolerant when we stand on it is humility. It's the right way to approach God, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, and it's the right way to approach others. God, may we be a people who humble ourselves before him enough to recognize that this word deserves to be approached with reverence and with awe and with wonder. That's what Daniel did. This word was alarming to him. That's chapter 7, verse 15. This word was alarming to him. It's the same thing that John, when he received on the Isle of Patmos, the revelation that we know is that book to end out the New Testament. In chapter 1, verse 17, it says that he, he basically fainted. It says, I fell down as though I were dead. This word should alarm us. It should make us nervous. It should make us have feelings in the pits of our stomach. Reading it or hearing it read aloud ought to excite us and to humble us and incite us to worship. Why? Because in Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, we read we, we, these words. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept this matter in my heart. These words aren't just to alarm us. They are to be precious to us. Why words of eschatology? So we would have a higher view of God and that our higher view of God would thrill us. There's another reason why we ought to land in and understand and dive into words of eschatology. Why? Because it defines history and it decodes the future. I want you to know the name Antiochus. I I geek out over this story. This is why some of Daniel's prophetic words have already come true. We know that through much of history. Much of Daniel's prophecy from the Babylonian kingdom is history to us through world empires. The Medo-Persians did, in fact, conquer Babylon. Sometime after Daniel's vision, Greece did come after Persia. Rome did come after Greece. And in those prophetic foreshadowings, God paints for us a picture of not just what will happen in the last days. He told Daniel what would happen in the next days. And if I had, all, if I had my pick of all the prophecies that are given in the Old Testament, obviously we would have to pick by nature of the fact that we're a Christian church today. We would have to pick the ones that are regarding Jesus coming. But second to that in my mind would be these from Daniel regarding a man named Antiochus who came out of the Greek kingdom. Listen to these words from chapter 8. We're skipping over chapter 8, verse 8. It says, Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act 
and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. History tells us what that prophecy was about. You see, Philip II led Greece to conquer much of the West, and then he unified all of the Greek city-states into one nation. And just before he set his sights on Persia and conquering his neighboring nation, he was murdered, and his son, you know this from history, Alexander the Great, take over the Greek Empire. Alexander is the large horn on the face of the shaggy goat. He conquered the Persian Empire in 10 short years. That is minuscule in comparison to how long it took to overthrow governments back in those days. That's why he's depicted in Daniel chapter 7 as a leopard, because he moved that quickly. And at the height of his power, he was taken out. The horn was broken off. And four conspicuous horns grew in its place. Those four conspicuous horns are the four generals that the Greek Empire was divided into. Two of those we know as the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. We study those in world history. Well, divided among those in the Seleucids, there came a tiny horn from the four horns. A tiny horn. That was Antiochus. He was the Greek emperor from 175 to 164 BC. His portion of the Greek Empire, it controlled the south. It controlled the east, and he set his sights on the glorious land. Some of your Bible translations say the land called beautiful. You know what that is? Jerusalem. It's God's people, and he set his eyes against it. He made war with righteousness. He made war with God's people. History tells us that when he took Jerusalem, he killed 80,000 plus Jews, men, women, and children. He eliminated the worship practice, the one that had just been granted to them by Cyrus when they were allowed to return to the Holy Land and enact their worship practice for the first time in 70 years. Well, he eliminated that all over again, and he went further. He set up a statue of Zeus, his God, Greek mythology, in the holiest place. And he slaughtered a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar of sacrifice. This is when it gets really good. Because a Jewish priest by the name of Mattathias rose up in rebellion against Antiochus. He died in the fight, but his son Judah, whose surname was Maccabeus, where we get the name Maccabean Revolt, it means the hammer, he ended up winning that battle, and the Maccabees took back the temple. Well, legend tells us that they had a number of days where they were going to have to consecrate and reclean and, and reanoint everything in the temple because it had been made unclean by Antiochus. Well, they didn't have enough oil to burn the candle. And for eight days, the candle miraculously continued to burn the exact amount of time that it took to press olives into new oil so the candles could remain lit. And they celebrate to this day that Jewish holiday festival, Hanukkah, the festival of light. It's written about in the New Testament because Jesus and his family observed Hanukkah, the festival of light, and it's a feast of dedication. And this is why it matters to us. It matters to us because although it is July, we're six months away from Christmas, we're counting it down. In December, all over the planet, people will observe Hanukkah. And all throughout our country, there are people who will observe Hanukkah. Maybe even in certainly in this community, and maybe even in your family, people will observe Hanukkah, and they will celebrate a festival of light without the full knowledge that the God of this universe who gave them that miracle also sent his son to be the light of the world. That's why this eschatology matters for us, because we need to see that God has given us the tools to define what has happened throughout history from the perspective of his word. It also, it decodes for us the future, And we can rest sure that if Daniel's prophetic vision came undeniably true in a man named Antiochus, we can rightly respect that the rest will too, even the parts that concern the Antichrist that is yet to come. 
There is way too much to cover today regarding the Antichrist, but I did want you to see some verses. We're backtracking over into chapter 7 again with verse 21. It says, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Well, you see a horn. Well, the horn was in chapter 8. That was Antiochus. How come you're telling me that in chapter 7 it's the Antichrist? Because the horn in chapter 8 came out of the horned goat. It was the third kingdom. It was the Greeks. And in Daniel chapter 7, we're talking about Rome. You see, Daniel chapter 7 gives us the broad brush, 10,000 foot zoomed out view of all four kingdoms. And Daniel chapter 8 gives us the zoomed in view on just one of them. Well, we're back in the zoomed out view now, and we know that this is coming from the unnamed beast, the one that doesn't have animals guaranteeing what it is. This unnamed beast, there's a horn that comes out of it. In verse 24, it says, As for the ten horns, the united kingdom, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law, for they have been given into his hand for a time, that's a year, times, that's two years, and half a time, three and a half years, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. There is an antichrist coming and that antichrist is going to be given dominion. He's going to attack the most high. He's going to attack the people of the most high. He's going to change things where it makes it difficult to honor the most high. He is going to deceive. He is going to seek to do what our enemy has always sought to do, which is to gather the praise that is due our God. How do we know that these prophecies about the Antichrist are going to come true? Because the ones about Antiochus did. Because the Medes came, Persia rose, the Greek Empire came. After that, the Romans evolved. Same thing with the prophecies of Jesus. He was born to a virgin in a town called Bethlehem. He was crucified on a cruel cross. He rose again three days later and he ascended back into heaven, but not before establishing his church. If you look at the prophecies concerning Jesus, more than 300 of them, prophesied over 700 years before he was born. What is the probability of Jesus fulfilling even eight of those instead of every single one that he did? It's one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one in 10 followed by 17 zeros. That many silver dollars would fill up the entire state of Texas two feet deep. And if you took a man in Dallas Metroplex and put a blindfold on him and allowed him to walk out in any direction that he chose, he would lean down and the first silver dollar that he picked up in a seed that large would be the one that you previously marked with an X. That's the probability of Jesus fulfilling those prophecies. And we know through history that he did. That's how we can be certain that the remainder of these prophecies, regardless of the interpretation that you have for them, is going to come true. Jesus commented on those prophecies. It's a cross-reference that's given to you in Matthew chapter 24, and you're invited to go read this week because it will blow your mind. John's revelation, we pick back up in chapter 13, is the same. It says they what? Worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Three and a half years. Time, times, half a time. And it was allowed to make war on the saints. And it was allowed to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In a coming kingdom, scholars tell us there will be a federation of governments of ten united kingdoms where an antichrist, the opposite of Jesus, will rise. 
And these words of eschatology, they define for us what has happened through recorded history, but they also decode for us what will happen in the future. And while we can't be certain about the date, we can't be certain about the time, we can't be certain about the person, although people have tried to figure it out. Some people thought Oprah was the Antichrist. I mean, people have been trying to figure out since the beginning of time, regardless of who it is or when it is or where it is, we can be sure of what we're supposed to do in light of that. You see, these words of eschatology also do something else for us. They elevate our understanding of Jesus. If you back up to verse 13 in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, I saw the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That title, Son of Man for the Christ, is the title that Jesus used more than any other description to describe who he was and why he came. And if you go in your cross-referencing to the book of Mark, chapter 14, you read these words from chapters, verses 60 and 62. This is the moment that Jesus was arrested. This is the moment that he was being tried. And the high priest, verse 60, stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Do you want to know why those priests were furious? Because they knew the words of Daniel. And they knew that Jesus was inserting that he was the son of man that was going to be presented before the ancient of days, coronated as the king over an everlasting kingdom. He wasn't just saying, I'm going to be the Messiah, the Christ who is crucified. He's saying, I'm going to be the king that comes and reigns over God's kingdom. They tore their clothes in fury, and they beat him, and they flogged him, and they killed him. And the reason why we study eschatology is because it makes the gospels more sense. It helps us to unpack and understand what it is that was really happening when Jesus declared that he was not only Messiah, but he was also king. That's why Paul wrote these words in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Eschatology makes sense of Philippians. Eschatology makes sense of Mark. Eschatology makes sense for us of Jesus. And when we understand him better, we will worship him more and we'll be prepared for his return because these words of eschatology exist to make us ready. If you go even forward again to the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verse 19, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. God was giving Daniel a glimpse of what was going to happen in the end. And that glimpse went back and forth between the immediate history, what would follow Daniel in the coming kingdoms, but also the end times history, what is still coming for the likes of you and me. God chose to give that to Daniel for a reason. He's making it known to him so that he can explain to us what's going to happen in the end. Why? So that we can respond to it. Jesus quoted those words in Matthew chapter 24, verse 4 and 44. He answered, See to know to it that no one leads you astray. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. God chose to give this vision to Daniel then 
not just to ready the Jews for Antiochus, although it did, and not just to ready us for the Antichrist, although it should, but to ready us for the coming back of Jesus in a way that no other passage can. Eschatology exists to make us ready. What do we do with that in the meantime? That's a whole lot of information. We could geek out for another hour talking about what the times mean and what the days mean. That 2300, that was literally the amount of day and night sacrifices that Judah missed because Antiochus had desecrated their holy place. I don't want us to miss the opportunities that we have to make much of God because we're not ready for his return. At the end of Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, we read these words. It says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. You do have my permission. I'll write you a note to miss work tomorrow if need be. It says, Then I, it's Daniel, he rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. Even though these words are alarming, even though these words are shocking, even though we can't all possibly fully understand them, there's a pun. We are to be about the king's business. Daniel went about normal life, and we should too. Tomorrow morning, I want you to get up, exercise, eat breakfast, take a shower. Go to work, leave for vacation, hit the grocery store, make wise choices, balance your spending, set the DVR to record the next episode of Pioneer Woman or the Fixer Upper that you need to see. Go to Fandango and purchase your advance tickets for Jason Bourne, which is coming out later this month. Go about life. Go about your business. But don't neglect the kings. And since he is the king, we might want to prioritize his over ours. So in the middle of everything else you've got to do, love your family and your neighbor. Stand for justice, serve the poor, speak the gospel, invite someone to know Jesus Christ, invite them to this church, read the word of God and beg of the Holy Spirit of God to give you a hunger and a passion and an excitement and a love for these words so that they will speak to you and over you and ultimately through you to others. Ask him to help you hunger for these truths, even the complicated order ones. And maybe more providentially for us today, we'd like to ask that you would be about the king's business here too. That you wouldn't just be a consumer of church. That you wouldn't just be a a consumer of this fellowship of God. That you wouldn't just be a consumer of the environments that created to teach other people's children about God, including yours, but that somehow you would be a contributor to it. In a moment, men and women will come forward and they will collect tithes and offerings here like they do every Sunday as a part of our worship experience. Do not mistake those dollars for your full contribution because God's given you other gifts too. And somewhere inside of you, he's put the heart of a servant that's longing to come out and so we invite you to do that. Don't just be a consumer of the things of God. Be a contributor to the things of God. Be about the king's business here. 
statistically, over 75% of us have children that come to Rolling Hills Community Church on Sunday mornings, and we drop them off for someone else to lead. Would you be one of the someone else's? There are so many words here that we can't fully comprehend what they mean for us. And we can be so alarmed by the coming of the king in the last days that we are crippled in these days. And that would be nothing more than a tool and a trick of the enemy to deceive us and to make us not ready. Our invitation today is to be about the king's business. And my hope and prayer is that all the things of this life, all the headlines that we read, all the disasters that we know of, and all the things that are on our to-do lists of business that we've got to take care of tomorrow, that none of it would become the deception and the distraction that the enemy uses to keep us from the king's business. Daniel was alarmed, and Daniel was confused. But he went about the king's business. Regardless of what we understand these words to mean today about the Antichrist and the coming of Christ's kingdom, my hope and prayer today is that we would be a people who determine with our hearts and also with our hands to be about the business of the king until he returns. It's in his name that we pray today. Father, we are blown away by your word and excited by your word and confused by your word. And Father, it would have been far simpler today if we had come in here and just told an elementary school version of your word, but you put us in a PhD program this morning, God. We're okay with that. Father, my prayer for these brothers and sisters of mine is that these words of eschatology, of end times prophecy, would invite us to expand our view of you towards worship. They would invite us to define for ourselves what has happened in history and also in our personal stories, but also to understand the future and what part we play in it. God, may it elevate our understanding of Jesus and ultimately our readiness for his return and our desire to serve him in the meantime. God, may we be a people who are called out, set apart, and passionately gifted in your service. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray blessings on this day and on these people. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite the men and women who are called our ushers to come forward. They'll take tithes and offerings. Um, it's an opportunity for us to continue our, our worship service telling God that he's worth all this because he is. But beyond that, again, what, beyond what you put in there today, um, my hope and prayer is that what you do with these and what you do with this um, will speak a better worship in your life today. Uh, that somehow you'll be called out and set apart for the king's service here so that other people may know and understand that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over today. He's Lord over tomorrow. He's Lord over forever. And we indicate our knowledge of that with our gifts and with our service. God, would you take these offerings would you take these tithes and multiply them to grow your kingdom? But God, would you also call us out, set us apart, use our hands, our gifts, our time, and our abilities to grow your kingdom right now so that it will be an accurate reflection of your kingdom that will come. 
one where your people give you praise, give you glory, give you adoration, that we don't reserve one iota of that for the enemy in this world who desires to steal it from us, but God, that we give it to you and you alone. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.